Thanks for joining us. Coming up on NTD Business. The International Monetary Fund cutting its outlook for the world economy. Why? Earnings season kicking off this week. A top financial advisory firm tells us we may see earnings hit bottom this quarter before going back up. A Zillow economist says house flipping is not a good way to get rich quick in this market. But other experts have a different analysis. A credit crunch in the U.S.? A new report says it may have dire consequences in the United States. A judge denies Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes' request to remain free on bail while she appeals her conviction, setting the stage for her report to prison later this month. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. On Wall Street, stocks ended mixed today. The Dow added 98 points, or 0.3%. S&P fell less than one point, mostly stayed the same. And the Nasdaq lost 52 points, or 0.4%. The International Monetary Fund is now less optimistic about the global economic growth. This is compared to January. In its latest report today, it cut this year's global growth outlook slightly to 2.8%. It cut next year's outlook to 3%. Both are down 0.1%. The reason is weaker performances in some larger economies and expectations of more rate hikes to battle inflation. The IMF also said the banking crisis added another layer of uncertainty. And if it flares up again, it could slash output to near recessionary levels. While the IMF is cutting its global outlook, its U.S. outlook improved a bit from 1.4 to 1.6 percent. That's because the U.S. labor market remains strong. First quarter earnings are due. What will we see? Some estimates are showing a possible 6.8 percent decline in earnings per share for S&P 500 companies. This is compared to last year. This could be the largest since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. We talked to nationally recognized financial advisory firm Blue Chip Partners. Joining us is Daniel Ducina, Director of Investments, Blue Chip Partners. Now, earnings season is upon us. Give us first your broad strokes. What's your outlook for earnings this quarter? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And first and foremost, I would say we came into this year expecting earnings consensus earnings to be reset downward quite a bit. And that's very much been the case. Um, I think there still is room for consensus earnings estimates to come down a little further. And in terms of actual results, there certainly are going to be surprises, but I think you're going to see less upside surprises this quarter than you did, say, a year ago. Um, More specifically, some other surprises that I think you might see. Obviously, the banking space is going to be very much in focus after the turmoil we all experienced through the month of March. One thing I think you might see as we get clarity on the actual deposit levels at some of the smaller banks, you very well may see deposits held up a lot better than some of their their current securities would price in the market today. So I think that's very much going to be top of mind for investors. And you know, essentially right now, consensus has us bottoming on a year-over-year growth perspective from earnings per share. I think you could very well see that. Uh, us finding a bottom right now is pretty meaningful from an earnings perspective because a lot of times the market will move ahead of that and that may be what you've been seeing this year so far. Now, what are some of the economic factors or trends that's pushing uh, either way for earnings? Yeah, well, one big trend that we've seen over the last year and a half um, that's kind of reversed itself was in the labor market. So if you rewind about a year and a half, there was this mass amount of labor shortages, right? a huge amount of job openings as measured by the job openings and labor turnover survey relative to those that were actively looking for work. 
that started to converge a little bit more to the point now where we have actually for the first time in almost two years had on corporate earnings calls more mentions of layoffs than we have labor shortages which is a very large deal because this has a feed through for inflation for profitability etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is a major theme that i think you could see persist started to flare up last year in the tech space it's permeated through parts of industrials and i think that's going to continue to be a theme as we approach this earnings season uh, am I correct in saying you're expecting further downturn in earnings uh, this year? I think you're going to find a bottom in this quarter. So right now, consensus has year-over-year um, -year earnings growth for the S&P 500 at down 6% year-over-year. And then coming into the third, second quarter, I guess, um, for earnings, from an earnings perspective, it would be down just 3%. Uh, I think you can find a bottom this quarter. Uh, I think it can get better from here because, well, number one, your comparisons on a year-over-year -year basis get a little bit easier as you work through this year. But also, um, I would say, number one, you know, dominant portion of the economy is the consumer. The consumer has held up tremendously well, still very well capitalized. I don't think you're going to get this rapid, rampant slowdown that some are calling for. Uh, that's not to say that we're, you know, going gangbusters from an economic perspective, but from an earnings perspective, I think things are getting tighter. But at the same time, corporations have adjusted. You know, they've adjusted on the margin to make sure profitability stays intact, focused on resiliency and free cash flow. And again, it's not going to be the case everywhere, but I think it's going to it's going to serve to separate the good from the bad ultimately this quarter. What's your advice for in general for investors? Yeah, well, I would say right now and. This is an evergreen strategy, but I would say right now in general, it's very prudent to focus on quality. Um, in terms of quality, I'm talking about low leverage or at least sensible leverage, real good return on invested capital, high levels of free cash flow, and really prudent capital allocators. Uh, and so that generally relates to good dividend growth equities. So companies that aren't just spitting off a high dividend yield, but companies that have been able to weather the storm that comes with many different adverse market cycles and continue to grow an income distribution to their shareholders through those. Generally speaking, those are the types of companies that come out of these types of environments for the better because they look so much better than everyone else that has been mismanaged or propped up from a valuation perspective because they were the shiny new object. So I certainly think that right now cash is king uh, in a number of different ways. And from the equity perspective, that would be from free cash flow. Uh, so I think that that is 100% an element of the equity markets that has been prioritized over the last year and a half and should continue to be prioritized as we go forward through 2023. All right. Thank you so much today, Daniel. It's a pleasure speaking to you. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Blackstone says today it's raised $30 billion for its latest global real estate fund. This as the company looks to double down on the industry. The fund is called Blackstone Real Estate Partners X. It's nearly 50% bigger than Blackstone's previous real estate fund, which closed in 2019. Blackstone has been shifting away from assets like traditional office buildings and malls. Those properties are facing headwinds from people working from home and the surge in e-commerce. Instead, the company is focusing its portfolio on logistics, rental housing, hospitality, lab offices, and data centers. Blackstone shares closed up 2% today. Zillow.com says now is a bad time to try to get rich quick by house flipping. That is, buying a house, fixing it up, and selling it for a profit. But the jury is still out on whether that's the case or not. NTD Star Marshall has more. Getting rich quick by flipping houses is not a good road to travel down, says Zillow chief economist Skylar Olson. 
Olson told Business Insider she believes the party's over for short-term real estate investors who rely on tactics like house flipping. But real estate investor Bob Thompson doesn't think flipping is such a bad idea. You have to remember that a lot of investors aren't using regular mortgage loans anyway, so that means absolutely nothing to them. They're using hard money lenders. They're, uses, they're using other investors. They're using cash. What you're seeing more and more of is the little investor is, let's say, finding the deal. It could be, okay, my cousin's uncle needs to sell their property. So they get it under contract for, let's say, 40 grand. They, in turn, flip it to the investor for 60 or 70 grand, who then does the work and then flips it back onto the market so a proper family can purchase, you know, can move into it. Olson says real estate investors should adopt a buy and hold strategy to ride out the tumultuous market and build equity along the way. Higher mortgage rates are slowing buyer demand. Robert Helms of the Real Estate Guys also gave me his opinion. Uh, it's a challenging time. Plus, if you're going to flip a house and do any substantial work, there's materials and logistics and supply chain. Everything costs more these days. I would be cautious today about flipping a property in all but the very best markets. And new home sales fell by 19% year over year in February, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Worries of economic recession could also discourage more Americans from purchasing homes. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Americans across the board are finding it harder to get credit. This is according to a new Epoch Times report. It could have significant consequences for the economy. We talked to the author of this report. And joining me is Kevin Stockland, Epoch Times business reporter. Now, you've been covering the state of credit conditions in the U.S. It seems like it's tightening. Perhaps you can tell us what you found. Uh, yes, the, the Federal Reserve is reporting that for the last uh, five months consecutively, uh, the um, extension of credit by banks has been declining. And so the concern is, in the wake of the, the banking crisis that we've seen, that banks may be tightening up on, on lending standards and that it may be much harder for Americans to get credit, to uh, get mortgages, car loans, this sort of thing. And why is that significant? Could you elaborate a little bit? Uh, well, the, we're looking at kind of the small and regional banks that are that are suffering the most and seem to be uh, constricting credit the most. And those are the primary lenders to things like small business, uh, to things like uh, consumer loans and things like that. So it's really the smaller uh, regional and community banks. They know their customers, they serve their local communities, and they provide uh, quite a lot of the credit to these communities. Um, so to the extent that they're suffering, um, it really does hurt small business um, and it hurts consumers quite a bit. How serious are, are we talking about this situation? Is, is this something that will cause economic harm? Well, so there, there's uh, that, that's still under debate. Um, we have a few months of data and we're trying to extrapolate from that how serious it is. There have been people that have pointed out that uh, smaller banks, and these are banks with less than 250 billion of assets, between 50 and 250 billion. Um, they provide um, half of the small business loans. They provide a majority of commercial real estate loans, and they provide a majority of um, personal mortgage loans. So it's a really significant 
significant part of the credit industry. Um, the Federal Reserve has uh, pointed out um, there was a recent speech uh, by the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve uh, president who said that he didn't think uh, necessarily it was that big a problem that a lot of credit is provided outside of banks, you know, through mortgage companies and, and things like this or car loan companies. So, um, you know, it really does remain to be seen. But Goldman Sachs, uh, contrary to that, has produced a report, and they believe that this credit crunch will reduce our GDP growth in 2023. So I think we're still waiting to see uh, what the long-term effects of this may be, but there are a lot of people that are raising red flags. Do you know what's the cause behind this? Well, it's, it's two things. So one, since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and, and a few other regional banks, um, we are seeing a lot of deposit money flowing out of smaller banks into larger banks. So there's been more than $100 billion of deposits that has uh, flooded out of smaller banks to the big banks, to JP. Morgan Chase and Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Citi and uh, institutions like this, um, just because they're fearful uh, that their money could be at risk. But the second thing is with interest rates going up, really for the first time in a decade, savers are able to get um, you know more than 4% uh, return on their money by putting it into money market funds and things like this, whereas they, get, they, they were getting nothing on their deposits for the longest time if they left them with banks. So for these two reasons, um, small regional community banks are seeing a flood of deposits, and that really constricts their ability to, to turn around and make loans from those deposits. Kevin, thank you so much today for talking to me about this. Pleasure having you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes has lost her bid to remain free on bail during her appeal. A judge ruled on Monday. Holmes was convicted last year on charges of defrauding investors in her failed blood testing startup. She rose to fame after claiming Theranos' small machines could run a number of diagnostic tests with just a few drops of blood. Holmes was sentenced to 11 years and three months in prison in November. She has appealed her conviction and wants to challenge evidence. The judge said that even if she won her appeal, it wouldn't result in a reversal nor a new trial of all the counts she was found guilty of. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, the Biden administration wants to hear from the public about how to regulate artificial intelligence. Google researchers create a tiny virtual AI town filled with autonomous AI people. They talk to each other, cook meals, and throw parties. How can businesses use this new application? That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. The Biden administration today said it's seeking public comment on how artificial intelligence should be regulated. OpenAI's ChatGPT grabbed the public's attention last November with its ability to write answers quickly and to a wide range of questions. The AI-powered chatbot has become the fastest-growing consumer application in history. 
The program now has more than 100 million monthly subscribers. The National Telecommunications and Information Administration wants public input on potential regulations. ChatGPT has wowed some with quick responses to questions. On the other hand, the software has also caused distress with others with inaccuracies. The NTIA plans to draft a report and provide information to the Biden administration. The Center for the Artificial Intelligence and Digital Policy has also voiced concerns to the Federal Trade Commission. The tech ethics group has asked the FTC to stop OpenAI from issuing new commercial releases of ChatGPT. The nonprofit said GPT was biased, deceptive, and a risk to privacy and public safety. Alibaba today showed off its generative AI model. It's called Tongyi Qianwen. This is its rival to ChatGPT. Fiona Jones reports. Alibaba on Tuesday unveiled its generative artificial intelligence model, Tongyi Qianwen. It is the Chinese company's version of the tech that powers chatbot, ChatGPT. Alibaba said the AI model would be integrated into all of the firm's apps in the near future. The unveiling of Tongyi Qianwen, which means truth from a thousand questions, followed the launch of new products by the Alibaba-backed AI company SenseTime. In a film's demonstration, Alibaba's AI model drafted invitation letters, planned trip itineraries and gave shopping advice. CEO Daniel Chong said the technology will bring about big changes to the way people live their lives. Government scrutiny of AI has grown around the world since the launch of Microsoft-backed GPT last year. China's authorities have published draft rules outlining how generative AI services should be managed. It said content generated had to adhere to so-called core socialist values. It also had to obey laws on data scrutiny and personal information protection. Those who fall foul of the rules could face fines or criminal investigation, it added. Imagine a small virtual town, and it's filled with autonomous AI people. Researchers from Google and Stanford teamed up to create this virtual town. They called it Smallville, population 25. There could be broad implications and applications for this research. We looked into it. But first, a bit of info on the town itself. Each AI inhabitant is programmed with his or her own identity, memories, relationships, and even personalities. It's kind of like 25 role-playing chat GPTs hanging out in the town. Chat GPT is the AI chatbot that replies intelligently to any question. Now, the AI people walk around the town, interact with each other and with the environment. They wake up, cook breakfast, start conversations, and form opinions. The researchers found that the 25 AI bots role-playing as people were, at times, better at role-playing than real humans. The researchers concluded that they created a believable simulation of human behavior. For example, an AI resident in the virtual town named Isabella Rodriguez. She wanted to have a Valentine's Day party at a cafe. She then autonomously sent out invites. She then, all by herself, spent the afternoon decorating the cafe for the party. Then on Valentine's Day, five people came to the party in the cafe. But how can we apply this research to industry, aside from the obvious, which is video games? We talked to the CEO of the Glimpse Group, Liron Bentoven. The Glimpse Group creates virtual reality and augmented reality software for all sectors, including education, healthcare, and marketing. Bentoven sees potentials in many areas, like job training. 
He gives restaurant management as an example. You can now simulate the whole restaurant, bring all the uh, kind of AIs to basically act like they are restaurant visitors with all the different personalities that you might have with all the different agendas. Some are really experienced and have a long experience. Some are really rushed and they are going to a play and you can give each agent their mission and they will react accordingly. And if the restaurant doesn't serve them, they would actually kind of depends on how you align their personality, get annoyed and, and, and kind of create a scene. And aside from job training, Bentovim also sees potential in simulations. For example, simulating a war between China and Taiwan with intelligent AI soldiers fighting on the beach. Or a simulation of how people behave during COVID. He's currently working on this at his own company with multiple AI partners. I have seen uh, with some of our AI partners kind of things like this. I've seen a military simulation with one of our AI partners where they've actually built a whole village and the, the people in the village are using AI agents and they're working with each other. So they're happily kind of going about their life and you come in and you interact with the village. But the villagers, if you'll just let them be, are running around doing their thing. The researchers from Google and Stanford also point out many potential applications. For example, it can be used for testing an early version of a product or a service. While real human beings can only spend so much time testing out your prototype, AI people can do it much more in shorter amounts of time. They can potentially find more design flaws in a shorter period and more cheaply. Another application, the researchers say we can get a deeper understanding of human needs and preferences. This can tell us the best way to create things like technology and architecture. But the researchers do see negative implications. The first one being humans may become emotionally attached to AI people. Liron Bentovim, CEO of the Glimpse Group, has similar concerns. People will kind of spend more time kind of surrounded by AIs rather than spending time with fellow humans. And that's uh, definitely a fear as we're going into more and more immersive worlds that kind of we will spend time in. The researchers also worry developers may over-rely on virtual AI people instead of real people. They're, they're also worried about potential errors. We reached out to the research team. Still to come, YouTube reveals prices for its NFL Sunday ticket subscription. How much will it cost you? Tips on what to do with your tax refund this year to help stretch those dollars. That and more coming up on NTD Business. And welcome back. YouTube said today its pricing plans for the NFL Sunday ticket package will be between $249 and $489. The full season of NFL Ticket Sunday will be available to YouTube TV subscribers for a pre-sale price of $249. That's $100 cheaper than the retail price. Consumers without a subscription to YouTube TV's other offerings will have to pay $449. A bundle consisting of NFL Sunday Ticket and NFL Red Zone goes for $489. In December, YouTube signed a multi-year deal to exclusively stream NFL Sunday Ticket in the United States. DirecTV held the rights to NFL Sunday Ticket until the end of the 2022 season. The satellite provider had priced the package at about $300 a year for subscribers. 
Chances are you got a tax refund this year. How are you planning to spend that extra cash? Spending it wisely, bulking up your savings, or getting out of debt? Here are five smart ways to stretch those dollars according to one money coach. This year's tax refund is about 11% smaller than last year's, but at nearly $3,000, it's a prime opportunity to make some smart money moves. Using it in ways that you can leverage um, certain smart aspects of your finances to really catapult yourself in 2023 and beyond. Money coach Lynette Calfani-Cox has these five tips to spend your 2023 tax refund wisely. Number one, create or boost your emergency savings fund, and then don't touch it. We know from study after study that the average American doesn't even have $500 socked away to deal with an emergency. Number two, tackle high interest debt. Either pay off all debt or get on a plan to make some major progress this year. This goes for credit cards, personal loans, or any outstanding debt with a high interest rate. It'll improve your cash flow because by knocking out some debts by either eliminating them or by reducing them, you're going to be paying out less every single month to banks, to credit unions, etc. Number three, purchase a life insurance policy. Consider a policy that covers about five to ten times your annual salary. Number four, show your retirement accounts some love. Increase the percentage you're contributing to a workplace retirement account or contribute to a traditional Roth IRA if you meet eligibility requirements. And finally, invest in yourself. Set aside some of that refund cash for a gym membership, a home gym, dental work, or a new wardrobe. And that's it today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.